Hello and welcome to the Two Real Cinema Club. I'm James Uzika. And I'm Andres Lorente. And on the Two Real Cinema Club, each episode we watch two films, usually one old and one new, and we make some comparisons between them. And this week we are discussing Bo is Afraid. Bo is Afraid. 2023 and also comparing that to Forrest Gump, which is 1990. Something. Four. 94. 94. Oh, my God. I was trying to think this week of a, like a little, you know how I love an analogy. I was trying to think of an analogy yeah. this week. Um, and I've decided, I think basically the pop, we're like a book club. Yeah. But a book club where you don't read the book and instead, so like you watch the film oh, like, yeah. to catch up because you didn't read the book in time. And then oh, after God. you see the film, you worry that maybe you watched the wrong film or something with like a similar title. So oh. then you scour the internet for a similar film just in case. And then you watch that and then you start mixing up the two films in your mind. You can't figure out which film is which. And, and then when you finally come to the group, you've somehow mingled the two films together inextricably. It's all that. But a podcast in a podcast in a podcast. Wow! So it's like um, it's like reading the spark notes to two different books, <laughs> trying to get through a class in high school or something like that. It's like it's like a and, William Burroughs cut up of the spark notes, isn't it? Yeah, uh, yeah. Or it's like you dro- you dropped water on the spark notes and the pages stuck together, so the ink ran, and you can't figure out whether it's Jane Eyre or whether it's whether it's uh, Taylor Two Cities. Oh, sounds messy. Very messy. That's what we are. That's what we missing. are. Yeah. God, I wish there had been a. I wish there had been a film adaptation of uh, a Tale of Two Cities back in high school. I would have, or even Great Expectations. I found the Dickens hard to get through. It's just so long. There is there is a film of 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 Great Expectations, isn't there? There's yeah. like the Alec Guinness film, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah either you went to high school a lot earlier than I than I realized, and and that hadn't been made at that point. 80s. Or because it was black and white, it was off the table. I did. I managed to get through Great Expectations, but there is the yeah the film with Ethan Hawke from what ninety eight or something like that, oh. and uh, that had um, Bob De Niro, Robert De Niro. Isn't oh, it? that's quality casting. We, let's, let's let's do let's do the socials because we're supposed to do the socials at the top. Uh, so you can follow us on Twitter uh, at Two Real Cine Club at Twitter dot com. You can. Uh, find us on Instagram to Real Cinema Club and at Instagram.com where I've started posting slightly dumb jokes about the films that we're covering. <laughs> uh, you can read the blog at to Real Cinema Club.com. Uh, we try to put something up every week on the blog besides the show. You can email us. Please email us. Please remind us that we exist. Uh, you can contact us at to Real Cinema Club at gmail.com. And finally, please tell your friends. Leave a review if you can bear it. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever else you get your podcasts. And we're on YouTube as well, the world's number one audio supplier. So we are everywhere. Please come and let us know that you're listening. If if you don't get an email, does that mean you don't exist? <laughs> that's how I that's how I feel. If, if an email arrives in the forest and there's no tree to pick it up, does that mean <laughs> d- does the email happen? Still looking for some good emails at Two Real Cinema Club at gmail dot com. Our spam protection over there is phenomenal. I don't say that much, but uh, I'd like to hear from more real people, please. Um, so you were talking about a book club earlier, and when you're writing book reports and such, you're supposed to cite your sources. And I feel like I need to uh, uh, cite my sources before I'm expelled from this podcast. Is, is this? Uh, is this this corrections? This is the correction section. It's sort of a corrections, yeah. It's that part where you either get those little small numbers in superscript, is that a one or a two and three, and then you've got the footnote down below or some kind of asterisk or parentheses at use for um, just acknowledging that there's some smarter people out there than you and that you've got <laughs> to say when you've used their material. And on the popcorn counter, 
last week when we were talking about sort of uh, urban living and such, um, I did cite, I had just been listening to some podcasts about exactly that. So ah. um, I listened to something from the architectural historian Thomas Giovanni. He was working on uh, some history of the Curtis Building, which is a famous building that housed a published company in Philadelphia. And I had listened to his podcast, which is called If You Lick It, It Will Kill You. <laughs> Clever name, but I did want to mention that. And then also I was lucky enough to talk with, well, by chance, the one of the architects who redesigned that building in the 80s, Theodore Oldham. So he was talking to me a little bit. I was in Cleveland. We were talking about like transforming um, buildings into multi-use facilities sort of living and commercial space, these skyscrapers that are starting to go empty. Um, so I did have some things in my arsenal that I was using from these conversations or these podcasts. So I just want to cite those two sources and shout out to them for uh, uh, allowing me to share their knowledge. Citations provided by an amazing coincidence. If you lick it, it will kill you. Was on the shortlist for names for this podcast, wasn't it? It was, yes. We, we nearly called our I think podcast. We felt that. it was a bit too controversial. <laughs> just too on the nose, really, yeah. But uh, Digiovanni's <laughs> braver than we are for sure. So uh, look look for his podcast. Look, It's going to be a, a deep dive. You've got to find it out there. But uh, if you lick it, it will kill you. But that's not what we're talking about today. What are we talking about today? Well, I. I I can't, I kind of want to ask you, what the hell did I watch this week? Oh, my God, we watched Bo is Afraid, the new Ari Aster movie. And I did feel like if I had licked any part of that film, it certainly would have killed me. Lethal. Absolutely lethal. Oh, yes. my goodness me. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, what an assault on the senses and not a short assault either. Um, I've been bludgeoned not just by the visual stimulation, but by the sheer blooming length. Shall I tell you the story of Bo is Afraid? The new uh, film from Ari Aster. Let me tell th- you the story. That's a rhetorical question because I was going to say no. <laughs> Don't tell me the story. But go ahead. Yes, of course. For the Do listener, you have three please. hours to spare? <laughs> so, uh, Ari Aster, who made uh, Hereditary, Hereditary and yep. Midsommar, uh, neither of which I've seen. This is his uh, biggest film ever. Um, uh, coming in with a budget of $35 million, Joaquin Phoenix stars, um, and uh, he plays Bo, uh, the, the, the titular character. He's a middle-aged man. He lives alone in a, in a tiny apartment in a rundown building in the absolute worst part of town, it's like a place where vagrants murder each other on his actual literal doorstep. Uh, you know, he sees his therapist. He's taking medication for anxiety. He's due to visit his mother on the anniversary of his father's death. But when his suitcase and his keys are stolen, just as he sets off, he's afraid to leave his apartment at all, much to his mother's deeply expressed disappointment. And when he finally must venture out to get water to take his prescription drugs, he leaves the door ajar and what looks like a hundred homeless people move into the apartment, wrecking the place. When he calls his mother to explain what happened, the phone is answered by a delivery man who says that he has just found his mother's dead body. And so begins a lengthy, surreal, violent, dreamlike road movie that sees Bo attacked, assaulted, traumatised in two dozen different ways as he struggles to make it to his mother's funeral, where another devastating revelation awaits. Ooh, is, did I get well, to, did I get enough in? Was that was that nearly three hours? Um, no, not <laughs> nearly. Oh, 
I skipped out a lot in the middle there. You did. <laughs> it was mercifully short. And you left me on a cliffhanger. Something else happened. <laughs> I hope I hope this isn't like the like the book club thing where now I worry that we've seen two different films called Bo is Afraid. <laughs> was, although to be fair, you could um you could have split it up into two films. You could have split it up into three films. This film is really long, isn't it? It's really, really long. Yeah, what was the running time? Two forty or something yeah, like that? No, no, it's long. It's three hours. Is it three hours? It is three. I think it's 178 minutes. So it's two two minutes short of three hours. It's unnecessarily long, I'm afraid. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um it made a big impression of me, but there is a lot of it. Yeah. Um and and, and it's it's what we'll, we'll talk about it in general terms before we ring the spoiler bell, but it, mm. it is very episodic, isn't it? It's like a, a series of dreamlike skits. Yeah. And you know, and I got to the end and I thought, well, you know, especially that middle section, those kind of dreamlike moments could largely have been presented in any order. You know, they, they could have been shuffled and the film would have been basically the same. Yeah. Interestingly, um, I didn't know until this afternoon, it, it's based on um, an original six minute short film that Ari Aster made 12 years ago. You can't see it, but you can see little little kind of clips and excerpts from it oh, really? on YouTube. So I watched little bits. And uh, the six-minute short movie is basically the first hour of Bo is Afraid, but compressed into six minutes. Wow. But it, it, does press the, well, it does ask the question, well, well, so, so if you're able to accomplish all that in six minutes, why is this film three hours long now? Yeah, you're kind of going in the wrong direction in terms of <laughs> film. You'd think you'd want to be able to tell the story faster. Oh, so six minutes is, uh, what is that, 30, one thirtieth of Bo is Afraid, something like that? <laughs> Now you tell me. Now, now, you tell now me. we're talking. Save me an hour. Um, yeah, it's not short, and it's it's you know the thing is it's not only it, it's not not only is it not short, it's like an hour and a half too long. Yeah, at least an hour. So there's a lot to be cut, and you're right. I think as a result, I stopped losing any sense of it whatsoever because it is very episodic. It's not uh, like one whole story or something really like zeroing in on one concise thing. It's just jamming a whole lot in. And then there's this whole theater scene in the middle that takes up probably 30 or 40 minutes to tell us things that aren't even necessarily true in the story, um, which we can go into in depth later if we want to. I think you could, but as you said, you could dismiss a whole lot of this, just edit it right out and it really wouldn't change the quality of the film. I mean, I can't, yes, there's lots of little episodes. Things occur, and I, I think a lot of the individual scenes are often great. I mean, you know, there are terrifying moments filled with kind of dread and apprehension, which I think is the thing you know, that he does very well. It's kind of, it's Lynchian, isn't it? It's this dreamlike yeah. Lynchian fugue. But because it's so episodic, it just, like you say, it doesn't really flow together as a story yeah. any more than a dream does. It's like dream logic. It's very dreamlike and it's like when you reach the end of a dream and you wake up in the morning and you recall like a series of vivid moving images. But, you know, the story of your dream is, you know, you try and relate it to somebody over breakfast and you realize you're just telling them, well, this happened and then that happened and then this turned into that and then this happened and then that happened. And, yeah. and then I woke up um, and this has much the same feel. I'm not against movies feeling like dreams. This is one of the central precepts uh, that they emphasized on the screenwriting course where you and I met was that That's right. you know, cinema yeah, yeah. is dreaming. Yep. Um, but uh, you know, this has you know, not just the creativity and the unhinged aspect of dreaming, but also the sheer failure of logic of dreaming as well. I mean, I'm sure that was probably the intention, but I'm not sure that it entirely works. You, you need terra firma somewhere. I think that's what uh, what the problem is here. 
and I think on the page it would seem dreamlike and com- incomprehensible, but then you, you get to the director's level, and I think he's a little too freeform in this, and we can talk about who had final cut on this film. Yeah. Um, but then also I think the character himself, he has a brain injury at one point, he's not taking his medication, so that's not firm either. So there's nothing firm, because we don't know what Bo's experiencing and how his current conditions, whether it's the head injury, whether it's his he's not taking his medicine the way he should, um, or anything else... Um, we don't really have anything firm. There's no nothing we can really lean on and say, okay, this is definitely happening. Because I wasn't sure what was really happening and what was in his imagination. I wasn't sure if this was uh, an analysis or a study of mental illness or, or paranoid schizophrenia or something like that. Um, so as a result, there was nothing you could really grasp onto <laughs> as a viewer. So there's viewer confusion. There's protagonist confusion. I think there's a lot of director confusion in here. And I think <laughs> there's a script where he probably just literally shout out whatever he wanted to do and then uh, it was someone someone gave him some money to make the film so 35 million dollars is a lot of money um, do you think it's and- possible possible that he dropped the script on the way to, to the set and then uh, you know, just reassembled the pages in a random order Sounds like your book club, doesn't it? See, <laughs> this is a book club. <laughs> should we should we ring the st- spoiler bell so we can talk yeah, about some I, of the juicier bits? I this think film was already no. spoiled before that damn building. Yeah, we should. You know, this is my favourite bit. I I love this. Um, you know, w- whether it's necessary or not, let's. Just, I'll ring. <laughs> I'll ring the bell. I'll ring the bell. Let me get the hammer. Wait a second. Wait a second. Wait a second. Okay. Oh, that's loud, isn't it? Mm, well, it'll help us meditate, though. <laughs> Oh, my head's ringing. Okay, I I will confess, I did enjoy this film. Enjoy maybe isn't quite the right word. I certainly, you know, I felt like I had really experienced something. I didn't come away from this film feeling, you know, meh, didn't move me. Mm. Um, It, you know, it did move me, maybe in ways I didn't particularly want to feel moved. But if I have one central complaint about it, it's that there's something about the film's title that Bo is afraid, which somehow seems to, it like wants to beg you to imagine that his fear is unnecessary. Mm. Like the, the, just writing that he is afraid in the title seems to imply that his fear is probably silly or, you know, his fear is is unfounded. Uh, but I got to the end of the film and I thought, well, you, blooming out, Bo, you have every right to be afraid because all the things that happen to you are genuinely terrifying. Yeah, absolutely. I think Ari Aster is just great at identifying things that discomfort the viewer. There's kind of oh, so many things that really made me... Cruel. It was like a warning sign very, very early on when in his apartment on the door, the landlord has put spider warning posters. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it, you know, it just got worse from there. The kind of moments of sheer nightmarish terror, the man hiding in the ceiling, you know, the, the you know, right at the end of the movie, spoiler, sorry, the giant penis monster in the attic, the <sighs> unstoppable kind of Terminator like uh, kind of deranged ex soldier chasing Bo with a machine gun. <laughs> Jeeves, right? <laughs> yeah, Jeeves, that's his name. Yes, just you know, brilliant name. Well, Ask Jeeves. Um, like just the sheer volume of stabbings, the the bleeding, yeah. getting crushed by the wheels of the food truck. I mean, this is this is pure horror. Um, God no, God no wonder he's afraid. I was. But is it a critique of American life and American society today, or is it some sort of, as I said, study of mental illness? Because when you say afraid, I think paranoid, and there's a lot of paranoia in this film. Um, but I don't know that I don't know that that's really even the subject of the film. I don't know if that's what Astor's trying to look at and and study and put on screen. I mean, paranoia is when you believe everyone around you is you know has got a gun or they're you know trying to to you know murder you in your sleep whereas mm-hmm. 
within the world of the film, everybody does have a gun and everyone really is yeah. trying to murder Bo in his sleep. Exactly. Um, I realise we get it's, it's a very subjective viewpoint. There isn't a scene really without Bo in it. It's very much a POV kind of movie. Mm-hmm. But for you to write, make a film about paranoia, I think you need to demonstrate that there is a, like you say, there is a real world. There is a solid earth somewhere mm-hmm. um, where you can judge how far you have um, let your paranoia take you. Um, whereas you know, we, we see the film entirely in Bo's shoes. So it's difficult to say he's paranoid when he's yeah. you know, clearly just in the firing rate, in the firing line. You do see it in the trailer mix of, in the, and even the advertisements, it make it clear that you're sort of seeing it from different ages for Bo. different. You have the teen yeah. story when he's on the cruise with his mother. You see him older when he's had children that maybe he had or did not have. Um, so you see him at different ages sort of having the same kinds of experiences. But I, th- I think you're supposed to get some of that fear from his mother, obviously. I think she instills a lot of fear in him and anxiety in him. And, you know, ultimately this is a tale about him trying to get back to his mother. Um, so I don't know that that makes any difference, though, that uh, that he's always been this way. Uh, and then again, he's, ta- you know, the, the opening scene, he's with a psychiatrist who's giving him a new medication. So he's, we know that he's on a medication. We know that he's trying to get back to his mother, which is sort of a difficult thing for him, regardless of what age he's been. I think he's had a... Tenuous relationship with his mother. Um, and I, for me, I'm, I, I was grabbing for themes the whole re, the whole time I was watching this and thinking about it afterwards and trying to figure out what this is about. And the biggest thing for me was how our parents mess us up, basically. And that's a, I think that's the only thing I came to. There was no... Remember his father? Doesn't his father die during his conception? Something like that there, <laughs> yes, right? reputedly, yes. Yeah. So this is what we heard anyway. And it's, it's an explanation for why the father's not on the scene and why he's not running home to his parents or going to see his father or anything like that. It's strictly a mother uh, mission. Um, so we know that he's not part of the picture. And then, you know, the mother sort of messes up his relationships with women early on, it seems like, by commenting uh, or getting too close, I think, and then intervening in a, this relationship. He sort of starts with Elaine, who comes back to us much later right. on a cruise ship when they're teenagers. Um, and then I th- think maybe if, if we try and work a little chronologically, we might talk about the ways that she continues to sort of mess with his head as she goes as she goes along, including faking her own death, apparently. Yes. Um, so... To me, the biggest theme that came through for me was our parents just mess us up. And, and <laughs> that was all I got. You know, I mean, I, 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 I'm reaching and reaching and grasping and grasping and couldn't get much more than that. So maybe I missed a whole lot. And the three hours was much too much to, for me. And I, you know, I, there were some moments that I thought were kind of visually humorous or I enjoyed a little bit. But I really found the whole scene, the whole film so tedious that I couldn't say that I really enjoyed it as a as a whole. I I came away feeling that um, I think the, the main takeaway I had was that Ari Aster has recently finished reading a book about Freud. Yeah. Because it, it feels like you know, this is, you know, this is Freud writ large. I mean, it has, it has a literal penis monster, isn't it? Bo you know, thinks that he will die if he has sex because he's told that his father died, you know, the first time he had sex and That's right. his father's father died the first time he has had he had sex you know Bo gets you know he gets penetrated doesn't he like again and again by long thin sharp objects that he stabbed and poked and um and the other thing is he like he encounters his mother 
like in many forms. I feel like pretty much every woman he meets in the film actually kind of is his mother. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, we meet his actual mother towards the end of the film, but also the doctor's wife who runs him over and then takes care of him, kind of mothers him. The pregnant sure. actor that he meets Act, yep. like in the forest acting troupe, she like cleans his wounds. She's like his mother. And then like the doctor's daughter who's, you know, the, the one whose room he steals, she screams at him and manipulates him like his mother. Mm-hmm. Then there's a fake mother in the coffin when he turns up yeah. uh, to the, having missed the funeral. And then and then um, finally at the very end when he meets the adult Elaine. Elaine, yeah. Um, and she's like this kind of proxy mother and he has sex with her in his mother's bed. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like it's almost like it's a film with just two characters. It's Bo and his mother, but the mother is seen through a hundred broken mirrors. Yeah. So I did wonder: is this an Oedipus film? I mean, that I mean, yeah, that isn't it? it? I think there's a massive Oedipus thing going on here, but it's it's again, it's not that clear, and maybe it's supposed to be subliminal, and it's not supposed to be clear. Um, but you're definitely right. I mean, all those those female characters all seem like they and they all sort of look like the mother character too there's not a lot yeah. of uh, differentiation in, in the women i guess um whew. i mean i think ariaster he likes to make films about weird families and mm-hmm. you know and there's a great kind of seam of gold to mind there audiences want to see films about weird messed up families i think there's you know there's a niche for that yeah um, all I would say is, that, you know, I don't know what Ariaster's own upbringing was like, but I'll tell you, if yeah. he invites me to his parents' house for Christmas, I am Ooh. saying no. Good, good. Oh, good. <laughs> be firm. Be strong. Yes. <laughs> I agree with you there. Um, uh, there's the testicle stuff and the penis thing. I think we should talk <laughs> about that a little bit. I feel safe in your hands as a doctor and all that, so I think it's okay to talk about that. But I. If you're going to put a big penis and massive testicles in an attic as a climactic scene, I think it needs to be earned a little bit more. It just felt <laughs> like it was thrown in there. It's a little surprising. Um, there is this talk about the, dis- is it a dis- distended testicle? What's the right word there? Apparently, yeah, I think so. Or like a swollen testicle. Yeah, or, swollen yeah testicle. he's like so, a testicular hematoma or something, doesn't he? So, or yeah, something yeah. the doctor says, yeah. So Nathan Lane's surgeon character mentions that early on. He's just taken him back to his house and practiced medicine on him and... Told him about his pe- testicle. And then you see the testicle when he's finally having sex in his mother's bed. It's, that's one of the clever things in the whole film. But that's it. Though You get those two moments and then all of a sudden a big penis and, and big testicles. And <laughs> I don't know how, how CGI that was or not, but it was impressive. Um, but I mean, I just, it was dark, wasn't it? Yeah, it was dark, but it, it didn't seem earned. And I'm not sure if it was a massive latex construction or not. But um, I th- I, for me, that was a bit over the top. It reminded me, oh... Oh God! Who's the great, uh, great English? I don't know if he's great. The English director Ken. Oh God! Who did stuff like that? Oh God! Ken Loach. Yeah, Ken, he's full no, of that. No, no, no. <laughs> Ken Loach. It'll come back to me. Ken Russell. Ken Russell. Ken Russell. Ken Russell. Yeah. Ken Russell. It was a total uh, Ken Russell moment, and I thought, <laughs> uh, I don't know if you've earned that. It just seems like if you're going to put that in there, you've got to build it up a little bit more. But then um, the other thing was the fact that. <clears throat> You're right. He was afraid to have sex because he thought he was going to die. And apparently this was his first um, sexual um, uh, encounter in his life. And then Parker Posey's there. And uh, this is the adult Elaine who's sort of being manipulated by his mother to try and get um, Bo to come back home. He starts seeing her on TV that Elaine now works for the mother. Um, And uh, so he wants to be with Elaine. They end up having sex. And then she dies, right? She's (laughs) the one who dies, not, not Bo. But I got to ask you again, medically, rigor mortis came in really fast on yeah, Parker that was, Posey there. 
I did pr- not understand what was going on there. When that happened, I thought somehow she had... I thought it was like there was a bit of a reveal and it turned out that Parker Posey's character was actually a doll and oh. not a real person. That's what I presumed it was, but I don't think no, so. I think no. you know, some servants come in and they carry her away and she is stiff yeah. as a board. And I did not really understand what was going on there and I put it down to dream logic again as okay. well. So what, what I think happens is I think there's this massive uh, deus ex machina, but it's actually kind of, it's more... It's more obvious in the sense that his mother seemingly has put all these um, things together to to get him to come home. She's, what, hired Elaine or gotten her to work for her and even sacrificed her life for her. There's all this, all these contrivances to get Bo back home. And it seems like his mother's been pulling these strings all along and she's revealed as this very powerful woman. Um, and I think what happens is at one point you see he's, he's looking through all the, I don't know, there are all these sort of... Um, uh, paintings and posters and things that he sees that have been laid out by the the mourners as they've passed through the house. And not much is made of this, but it seems like she has profited off his life forever. Like she ah. is in, she's the architect of this building where he lives in whatever city it was, um, which is, I don't know, to help people who need uh, assisted living or something like that. Um, she's developed for certain drugs, I think to to uh, help those with some sort of mental illness. Um, so it looks like everyone, every stage of her business career is based on some sort of need that, that Bo has. And even she almost even manipulates, manipulates his life to the point where he, his needs are her creations and then she makes these products or finds these solutions that earn her money. And that is, it's never said, it's never stated. You have to really look at the, the layouts in front of you, all these posters and things. Um, and that's what I got out of it. And for me, that was really, really interesting, but it was just a throwaway piece. I thought, yeah. how, how crazy is it that she would invent things that, or put her son through things that means he ends up with these conditions that need some sort of um, uh, solution and that she can make money off of the solution. I thought that was brilliant. And it's, I don't think that's even in the film. I think that was in my imagination. And as, and as you said before, you don't know what's real, what's a dream at one point. So, um, but that's what I saw. She had, there were these article, magazine articles and write-ups that showed what these things that she had done or these businesses that she'd started. And there's a clear picture of the apartment building where he lives, and she was the architect or one of the, the funders on the project. Um, it's a really interesting note, and I, you know, of all the things to edit out, it feels like everything that had to do with that story beat or that fact that we needed was edited out in favor of the big penis in the attic with the <laughs> testicles. I, I saw that moment when you get this... Um... Yeah, this slow pan across the wall with photographs mm-hmm. of all of her achievements. Yeah. I interpreted that as um, the film telling us that the mother had cared for Bo all this time. Ooh. That you know, even though she appeared distant and aggressive and unpleasant, actually, you know, he was constantly in her thoughts and and yeah. um, you know, and everything she did in her life was to protect him or to help him. Um, um, oof, I'm gonna. Although yeah. you know, that doesn't match up with anything else we learned about her character. Yeah. And I think I think she's actually an evil character, so I I, I couldn't interpret it that yeah, way. Yeah, I think you're and one right. And th- one reason I say that one reason I say that is I think it's a it's a is it a it's sort of an Andy Warhol like painting or portrait of her, but it's made up of all these other faces. Ah, uh, yeah. And if you look at those faces, Nathan Lane is in there. All the characters that have he's encountered uh, on the trip home, all those faces are in there. So it's almost as if she's used these people to get to Bo and to give him one last you know condition that needs to be repaired under her watch or something like that. So, and as I said, that for me, I think that's a great idea. 
and in the hands of a different filmmaker who actually paid attention to that and really drew, drew our attention to it and, and revealed that as the story, I think that would have been great. But as a result, you know, I was walking home after this film and just thinking, I think this is mostly about how our parents mess us up. And this woman's really, this mother in particular, is really not a very good person. And she's really screwed up both. That's about all I got. I think, I mean, I think you've sort of cut to one of my other main complaints about the film, which is that it features a protagonist, basically has no agency. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think, you know, this might possibly be at the core of the shortcomings of the story, basically because, you know, Bo is, you know, the, the main character in the film. The film is named after him, but he doesn't do anything, really. Mm-hmm. Things happen to him. You know, he's not the protagonist. He's the victim. Yeah. I, I, I'm struggling to think of a decision that he takes or a choice he makes on his own. Does he t- take a single decision all the way through the film? Basically, he does what he's told unless he physically can't face doing it. But otherwise, you know, he's, he's given instructions by people on screen and he acts them out. They, they tell him, take the pills. The yeah. girls tell him, smoke the joint. The, you yeah. know, the, the wife says, watch the TV. You know, the, the girlfriend says, take off your clothes. You know, he's, um, yep. he's given instructions and he follows them. He's a puppet right to the very, very end of the film. When, you know, at the end of the very last scene, he is chained to a boat. The boat capsizes. He dies with it. You know, he's, yeah. he's simply pulled along on some kind of uh, chain or string all the way through. Is he really a protagonist at all? It may be his story, but I'm not sure that he has any active part in it. Yeah, it's a, this is more an antagonist story, I think. And it's sort of an unseen antagonist, which makes you think it's kind of a psychological thing um, because his mother is really the antagonist. But she's so in his psyche that he's fearing all these things. He's going through all of this. Ends up in this sort of a... It's like a psychological sports stadium with a lake in it, right? And they're all <laughs> yes. watching and he's on trial for who knows what. And I guess it's it, he never really drowns you don't see it but presumably that's what's going to happen as the credits start to roll he's like he's in a very bad position (laughs) he's not going to survive his 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 trauma this this, this week's understatement yeah he is in a bad position you're right yeah (laughs) you thought he was in bad straits earlier on when he's got 100 people living in his apartment and destroying it and he can't get to his medication at least he could breathe then um i think you know in terms of agency you're right he has very little there's a one scene where he sort of escapes the suburbia only to be discovered by the, the what are they called? The orphans of the woods or something like that. I yeah. don't know what that, yeah, yeah. Who are this acting troupe that reenacts his life? That's a very odd scene too because it sort of it pretells and retells. It sort of tells you what you're about to see, and it's already kind of things that we sort of known or he's talked about or hinted at where he has this family all of a sudden he has this alter this other life that i guess would be his dream life maybe raising sons but there's no mother in the picture or something like that which mm. uh, again pointed me towards okay this is kind of an oedipus thing um where he doesn't really love his mother though that's the the funny thing he's not um he's not you know you feel like he doesn't want to go home that's that's you know in, yeah. the, in the early episodes with the psychiatrist he's putting up all these these sort of um these shields and these barriers I'm not going to do at home I can't do it and there's there's talk of how he hasn't been able to go home in the past and all that so um, I don't think he really wants to get there and maybe he knows that he's going to die maybe it's ah. a psychological death that he's dying it's really not again it's not that clear I mean because I don't believe the psychological courtroom and the stadium and all that and the lake. I don't think that actually happens. So it's almost as if is, is something psychologically dying with him or is it really he's his mother has just set up this very elaborate end game for him. I don't know. For I must say for all my you know confusion and misgivings about the film I 
still came awake glad that I had seen it. There are a bunch of great scenes in this film, and I was yeah. genuinely terrified many times. We've already mentioned like, you know, the man on the ceiling, like, like the scary naked knife murderer. Yeah. Like, maybe my favourite scene in the whole movie, this brief scene where he finds that... Uh, that life in the doctor's house is being recorded by CCTV. Yeah. And he briefly you know, rewinds the camera to see what he's just done. And then he forward winds the cat, like the, the, the yeah. footage. And he gets these kind of quick little glimpses of the future. Like, it's like something straight out of David Lynch. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I, yeah. A lot of these elements, they're just kind of great, but they just don't gel into a whole movie. Yeah. Like, and in the end, I came away thinking the whole thing is a bit like Monty Python's meaning of life. It's like there's a bunch of well-executed sketches yeah. and there are some thematic links, mm. but it's not a story. Yeah. You know, Meaning of Life is a fun film, but it's it's the weakest Monty Python film and it's the weakest for a reason. Mm. You know, it doesn't kind of gel together. It's just a whole bunch of bits and bobs stitched together. Yeah. I th I, yeah. I think you're onto something there. I mean, there are some... That's why it's frustrating. This is a frustrating film because good money went into it, good imagination went into it, and yet um, it doesn't hang together very well. And I, mean, I, I, I felt like I was watching... A, a bad Charlie Kaufman film on this because it was he's at least normally coherent I think his last film was not very coherent but there's normally a bit more co coherence in his scripts and there's some there's really there's some things that you can take away from it there's some depth of thought whereas I felt like this was just a bunch of kind of cool images or cool ideas pasted onto a storyboard somewhere and then and then shot and I kept thinking about um yeah you were talking a few pods back about you know a certain day of shooting could be a million bucks easily. And I just thought about some of those street scenes early in the film, which are really impressive. You know, it gets off to a pretty yeah. good start setting up the story world, but you know, we, we abandoned that story world entirely within about 25 minutes or something. <laughs> um, but some of those scenes must've been super expensive. And I just don't know that they really push the story forward. Cause those scenes give us very real reason to feel his, his fear, yeah. his paranoia, but the later scenes, it just starts to get kind of weird by the time you're in the forest for, what, 30, 30 minutes, probably 40 minutes, you feel like you're watching this whole other film. There's animation in there. Yeah, completely. And, and Bo is getting a new life at that point, too. And it just seems like, okay, he's escaped from suburbia. So now this is the life that Bo really imagines himself having. And then he gets disrupted once more. And he gets he ends up getting home really easily. Someone just picks him up and drives him <laughs> 20 minutes or something. <laughs> like that. So it's not like he's covering this massive distance after, but he has to go through a whole lot of crap but, uh, to get to that point. Um, but I think... Um, I think this is a film where no producers kind of reined it in and, and you know, the editor did not have you know final say on what this film looked like. I imagine this is a director's film and this is what he wanted us to see, so we've got to accept it as it is. Take it as it is. Yeah. Uh, I tell you who, there's, there's one group of people who won't take things as they are, mm. people who will step in and set things right. Should we phone the Critiche Squad? Yeah, 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 I think so. Critiche Squad. Uh, any particular charges you would like the cliche squad to prosecute this week? Because <laughs> I've I've written some down in, in my uh, my police notebook here. I, I I gotta say that yeah, I'm just gonna I want I think you should do most of the work here because it's been a month I think since I've seen this film and I've been working actively to sort of block it out of my memory. <laughs> I'm a little disappointed by the penis and testicle stuff. I guess I've already <laughs> gone off on it, so I mean, I won't belabor it, but um, we we very often see the penises and the testicles in these ways. I mean, in in these ways where it's just sort of this massive thing. It's all latex and it's all scary. And I don't think that's, I think that's, you know, 
something that we see too often. Um, didn't we, in Everyone Everywhere All at Once, didn't we see the, a lot of uh, phalluses, I guess? It or was. It was a lot of dildos in that film. And they were all yes. scary. And I just, I, I, I get it. <laughs> but it's not, it doesn't have to be weapons. It seems like most of the time the, 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 the male genitalia is used as weapons in films or, or metaphorically as weapons. And, and you know, I get it. It's probably true um, in, in, in a real sense. But we've seen it a lot now, haven't we? We've no, seen we've it a seen lot. a lot. And I, it, in this film, it just wasn't earned to me. I think it was probably just a big symbol for how uh, Freudian the whole thing was. But um, that's where I'll start. I'm going to leave it be. I've said my piece, so let's move on. I've, uh, I've made some little notes in my book. Frightening, scary, willful teenage girls. Yeah. I feel like they, they're kind of stock characters that I've seen many, many times before. These kind of, yeah. kind of yeah, self-possessed, demanding, mercurial, scary teenage girls. Yep. Yep, and and here, like so, there's like the daughter whose whose room Bo takes, and she isn't really a character. She's like just this stock type used for impact. She's got no story of her own, and at the, and then kind of like yeah. suddenly she takes her own life right on screen. You're yeah. like for kind of like for sort of no reason. It's like not the act of a genuine character. She's just like a you know she's a bit of the furniture basically. Um, so yeah, I've seen those characters too. Much. That was with all the paint too. There was all yeah. that paint. If you remember, that was just uh, yeah. nonsense. Okay. S- scary homeless people. Another it's another yeah. one I've put. Down. I mean, that's straight out of the David Lynch playbook, isn't it? But like, yes. you know, scary hobo. And they were very scary. They were. Yeah, very- well, I feel like I've seen that in a lot of films. Yeah. And also, like this, like this, um, this you know, absolute initial act one inciting incident, the new medication. Yep. That seems to kick a kickstart oh, yeah. a hallucinatory descent into madness. Yes, you know, this is this has been, you know, the, the central, you know, leading plot point for an awful lot of films, and it's happening again now. It mm-hmm. is happening again. Yeah. So I do feel like you know, many of these elements, yeah, you know, we've seen them before. They've kind of become cliches. Yeah. You know, the number of times that I've seen that little scene where the doctor writes a prescription and hands it over. Sure. You're kind of thinking, oh, okay, what's well, it's, it's that scene again? And very often the the handwriting's not very clear. <laughs> Doctors <laughs> having bad handwriting is a oof. <laughs> oh, but that's true. And I've seen your script, James. It's perfectly fine. In your case, you would never. <laughs> um, I think you are. I think the popcorn counter. Some of your points uh, a week ago kind of presaged all this in terms of the the city as being a da- an inherently dangerous place. Yeah, uh, I think this film has a pretty good balance in the sense that the the suburbs were equally scary, um, <laughs> but I think the real madness. I was scared in the movie theater watching those scenes that take place at the very beginning in the, in the city. So I think yeah, urban living as being inherently dangerous and dirty. I think that's definitely in there. I will say it again. I'm glad that I saw this film. I, you know, I kind of enjoyed it, but I could have done with about 50% of the runtime. Yeah. And, you know, and probably with 50% of the runtime, I think everyone would have enjoyed it a lot more. Yeah. I think, what, six minutes, you said, was the first hour. <laughs> this could have been a great 18-minute film. I would have done three of the six-minute films with a really classic structure. This one needed structure, structure, structure. Beginning, middle, and end, and all that stuff. 18 minutes. 18 minutes this would have been dynamite would have been great right let's 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 uh, let's have a break yeah and then we will come back uh, and talk about another bizarre hallucinatory david lynchian nightmare uh forrest gump from 1994 <laughs> We're proud this episode to be sponsored by TRC Air. 
the new budget airline that's offering tickets to premium destinations for one dollar. That's right, one dollar. Fly to Los Angeles for one dollar. New York for one dollar. London for one dollar. Singapore for one dollar. It's just a one dollar ticket, plus a small number of fees and taxes. If you want to bring a bag, it's sixty dollars. But you can fly with no luggage for a fee of just fifty-four dollars. Meals are charged at thirty-five dollars each, or you can bring your own food and pay thirty-five dollars per person, or eat nothing for a small hunger charge of forty-two dollars. Passengers must pay a mandatory seatbelt fee of twenty-two dollars per seat, headrest supplement of eighteen dollars, a cushion fee of thirteen dollars, an armrest charge of forty-two dollars fifty per arm. Armrests cannot be shared. All passengers must pay extra if they want the plane to take off or utilize its wings, fuselage, or fuel tanks at any point during the flight. Passengers wishing to board the plane must pay a local board. Fee passengers wishing to disembark the plane at any point must pay an exit supplement at their destination. Onboard films are charged at $16 each, even if you only glimpse one by accident on someone else's screen. All passengers must pay the standard air fee of $118 if they wish to breathe air during their flight. Passengers wishing to bring their own air must also pay an additional cylinder supplement of $109 and an oxygen mask fee of $19. Passengers wishing to hold their breath for the duration of the flight will have to pay a standard discomfort fee of $114. TRC Air. Travel the world for just $1. See website for terms and conditions at www.howmuchyourkiddingwheredidallthesextrascomefrom.com Oddly enough, I stopped breathing during that. In the hope of saving $60. Why exactly? (laughs) And we are back. My voice is not entirely back, but we're going (laughs) to... It's 80% back. We're going to sally forth all the same with Forrest Gump from 1994, uh, Big Tom Hanks' vehicle that also stars Sally Field and Robin Wright. Yeah. Uh, directed by Bob Zemeckis and written by Eric Roth. Yeah. He's got a, quite a quite a resume as a screenwriter. Very interesting. And it goes back into the early 70s or so. So he's about halfway into his career by 1994, and he knows how to write a script. Clearly. Um, and, from uh, a right, novel. He's, he's, I've never heard of the novel. Win- written by Winston Groom is what I wrote down, so... Yeah, yeah. I, um, I, I, did, I did the kind of the studious thing of... I did um, uh, get hold of the novel. Uh, before yeah. the poll, but I haven't read it yet. It's, I oh, think it's okay. quite short, but oh, I haven't. Oh, really? Uh, there so, you are. So, you, so you, I basically, you, I'm wasting my breath. So why did, why did I interject to say that? That, you, that well, brings nothing. Because you should so just start a space. book club. We keep talking about book club, book club. <laughs> it's a real book club. You're always reading the books. To Eric Roth, interestingly, I mean, you know, still yeah. working now, he wrote the, the script for Dune, didn't that's, he? That's like, right. Well, that's right. Yeah, we talked about him a little bit when we talked about Dune. And we we think he may have doctored it. I don't remember what our final um, ah. consensus was, but... We talked about it a little bit. Um, <clears throat> this takes place really in the America of the mostly 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, it opens with Forrest Gump on a park bench. Oh, before, wait a second. Before we get to the yeah. synopsis. Pardon me? Before we get to the synopsis. Oh, yeah. Uh-oh. There's, there's more. There's more. You have to tell me. because oh. uh, this, oh, this is so great. So you chose the, you chose the, like, the backup film this week. Oh. You chose the second movie. Yeah. Uh, but I'm going to get to tell you to, uh, to tell me yeah. why. Oh, gosh. That's right. Why? Do you have any other questions for me, Council? I think I looked at the trailer for Bo is Afraid. I knew he was going home to mother. Uh And I think that was already in the back of my head. I'm going to make an argument that at least one of these films is a magically real film. I think there's magical realism in in both of these films. I think they both attempt it, and I think one of them accomplishes it better than the other one. Um, 
And okay, so d- yeah, I just think okay. uh, you could tell that it was a very unreal film. So it's basically, I, I would make a choice of the old film based on, of course, what we're seeing as the new film. Um, and it reminded me just enough where I thought, okay, Forrest Gump is the way to go. And I, Forrest Gump is one of these films that I'm not sure I saw in the theater, and I'm, ne- I'm not sure I've ever sat down and watched the whole thing. It's one of these things that you see on cable, and I've pieced it together over the years by seeing maybe the end first and then the beginning and seeing the middle after that. But this time I did sit down, and as you said, it's two hours, 20 minutes. So it is a longer film, but I watched it straight through, and I don't regret it. But it's also, this is also like a commercially successful film, and sometimes we watch those, but not a whole lot, honestly. We haven't seen that many just absolute hits, surefire hits. I think this I mean, was a... It's made a lot of money, didn't it? It was $677 million gross, I think. Which wow. is what I wrote down in my notes. Which is, yeah. you know, in 1994, that was yeah. a lot of money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I understand why people see it, honestly. Um, this is a good film. It is a good film. Um, okay, tell, I, I, I won't interrupt anymore. Tell us the story. Then. You can interrupt. My voice is not that strong, so interrupt away. Um, <laughs> whisper the story. <laughs> I'll whisper a sport story to you. Uh, Forrest Gump uh, sits on a park bench. This is that classic scene that's probably been uh, copied in in comedy sketches for years. Uh, He's in Savannah, Georgia, waiting for a bus in what is very much 1981 that's made very clear to us. Um, And sitting next to him is this suitcase of life's sort of souvenirs and keepsakes. It doesn't make sense as a traveling piece of luggage, but for storytelling, it's perfect. And while he's waiting for a bus, he tells his life stories to anyone who sits beside him. Um, there's the very on-the-nose thematic statement early on. Life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. You know what this film is about kind of immediately. So it's just classic early f- opening five pages. The theme statement is just spoken, in this case, by the protagonist. Yep. Um, what ensues is, uh, and that's a, a bit of wisdom that he learned from his mother. He says, my mother used to always say this. Uh, what ensues is a sort of a lifetime of flashbacks um, that um, we see that he was unable to walk in early life. He wore these sort of leg braces um, and his movements in the boarding house that his mother operated uh, influenced Elvis, uh, who once stayed at the boarding house to do his sort of uh, dancing uh, provocatively as if he, his knees, I guess, were in braces too. Um, he befriends Jenny on the way to school one day. She sort of becomes his uh, protector and hero, and they will be friends for life. Um, she was from sort of an abusive household, um, and he was from a very loving household. Again, a single mother in her case, and uh, in his case, um, I'm not sure for Jenny if we, we heard about her abusive um, father, um, but we don't know much about her mother, and, and this, the setup sort of answers this very easy-to-answer riddle of, is it better to have a doting mother or a careless father? I think based <laughs> on Jenny and Forrest, uh, we should all go for the doting mother. Uh, Jenny's story sort of entwines with Forrest's story over the years, although um, we understandably get a lot more from Forrest's perspective because it's really his story. Um, he will play football for the University of Alabama because he runs so fast after leaving the, the leg braces far behind. Um, this film sort of becomes the, the history of a man, but also the history of the country coming of age, too. That's the way I look at it. It's a lot of flashbacks of um, historical things in United States history. Um, he enters the Army just in time for um, the Vietnam War. Um, he meets a true comrade, comrade in Bubba, 
And at the same time, Jenny, we get the story of her sort of becoming an exotic dancer. Um, he periodically emerges into her story when she's off at college or after college, and she's always trying to protect. Um, he's always trying to protect her. She doesn't want his protection. Um, their lives sort of both parallel and intersect over the years and over the story. Uh, when Forrest is in Vietnam, Jenny kind of goes hippie, so they're sort of on opposite sides, uh, sides of the spectrum in a, in a way. Um, but Forrest ends up a hero in Vietnam. He rescues uh, his, some, well, five or six guys in his troop of uh, soldiers. And his commander, Dan Taylor, who's played by Gary Sinise. Um, but Bubba, who he has decided he would go into the shrimping business with after, after the war, uh, dies, sadly. Um, Taylor, that's Dan Taylor, his destiny is sort of to die on the battlefield. All of the men in his family have died in the big wars in the United States, and he's supposed to die there, too. So he holds this grudge against Forrest because um, Forrest saves him and doesn't give him the honor of dying on the battlefield. Um, So his story, Dan's story, doesn't end the way he wants it to, and Forrest is sort of constantly being rewritten. So we do get this wonderful contrast in their two life stories. Um, Forrest sort of has this, uh, he's limited. He doesn't think of himself as very smart. He probably has some learning disabilities, but he has this growth mindset where he'll, he'll just do things and say yes to things and, and get some experience out of them. So he's got this sort of elastic thinking, which really sharply contrasts to Taylor's rigidity. Um, that's, that's why I've never heard before. Elastic thinking. Oh, I don't. I thought I've heard it, but I just wrote it down, but not knowing if I've heard it or not. Flexible thinking, something like that. That's good. No, I've, Is it I've, good? If, if I haven't heard it before, it doesn't mean it's not a thing. It just means I'm terribly ignorant and haven't come across it. Elastic thinking, I like that. It's good. We should trademark it and make a podcast called Elastic Thinking. <laughs> quickly, quickly. Dump this podcast. Let's start the new one. The Elastic um, Thinking Podcast. Uh, Forrest Gump becomes a ping pong champ, sort of in, international celebrity. Um, he appears with John Lennon on the Dick Cavett show with some, uh, I don't know, in, 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 ingenuity, ingenuity in, what is the word? Ingenu, ingenious, ingenious filmmaking. Ingenious. They put him there. Um, he helps solve the water break, Watergate break-in and the conspiracy that happens there under uh, the presidency of Richard Nixon. He meets three presidents in this film, personally. I think he, well, Nixon, he intertwines with... Kennedy and Johnson he meets through the magic of filmmaking. Um, He goes into the shrimping business, ultimately makes millions, invests in Apple. So all of these things are happening in American history, and and Forrest is perfectly placed in it. But then his personal story sort of takes over towards the uh, the later parts of the films. He becomes rich, but Mama's dying, so he goes back to uh, Georgia. And again, in this film, there's this powerful metaphor of going back home and going back to mother. Um, And Jenny returns... And this film's a lot about cultural, um, what did we say, lodestones or stepping stones or or, uh, touchstones, I guess is the word. Um, I found it. I had to go through three stones to get through it again. There's a lot. And for me, there are a couple of personal ones, too. There's this wonderful thing where I think Zemeckis quotes a painting by Andrew Wyeth called Christina's World. Because when Jenny comes back to her rundown old house, she sort of looks at it with this distance and this disbelief that um, Wyeth captures in a painting. Um, so that's there, too. There are just all these wonderful things. Um that sort of evoke Americana, I guess, throughout. So I'm going to be very interested in your take on some things too, because as a, as a non-American, I think it might come off different, differently. But uh, when Jenny comes back, they're happy. He proposes, she rejects him, but they have sex. And then, she, <laughs> then she's gone. Reminded me a little bit about the Northmen, because the Northmen actually 
if you remember. <laughs> Northman has sex one time also. Of, of all the films I thought you were going to compare Forrest Gump to, The Northman was not top of my list, actually. <laughs> well, I'll get back to that later. But it's interesting that isn't that Forrest's first sexual encounter? We've seen yeah. Bo's first, sex, first sexual encounter. And The Northman uh, jackpot, he had sex once on screen that we saw, I think, and he... Um, he procreates just from that one encounter. So, uh-oh, I think I've blown the secret already. But um, <laughs> Jenny escapes, and I have to mention this again because it's a touchstone for me. She leaves in this taxi. It's a station wagon that we had growing up. Oh, we awesome. all hated this car. This is the Chevrolet Chevelle Malibu classic wagon. We called it the Dearthmobile. <laughs> it was terrible. One of my greatest experiences, greatest memories is when my mother took her burro and shoved it into the back seat in a battle of two very stubborn souls. She got a burro into the back seat of the station wagon. He had to sort of, I don't know, crow, sort of crunch down a little bit just to <laughs> be in the car comfortably, and he was not comfortable. He actually shat a bunch, pissed in the back seat. We took him to some <laughs> event where it was a burro, like a burro conference or something. I don't even know, like a competition or something like that. And then I think my brother, my oldest brother, had a date in that same car later that night. <laughs> that night, right. <laughs> yeah, and it didn't smell good. And fortunately, it was with a, a girl who owned horses, so I think she was used to the, the stench. <laughs> but wow, we had that station wagon. We all hated it. And um, It's been a while since we've had a good donkey story on the podcast as well. We're, there you go. We got the donkey We're, we're betraying our, our normal donkey-orientated programming. Well, that's the, oof, that's the, my, the most vivid memory of that animal, and I felt very sorry for it. But um, I I was proud of my mother for getting it in there. It was amazing. I honestly um, never knew what a station wagon was. Oh. Because in the UK, the word station and the word wagon, those both mean railway. Oh, I, that's I, tr- I don't think I even really understood that a station wagon is a car. Yeah, it's a car, yeah. That explains a lot. I don't know if it was trauma that came up or nostalgia, but when I saw that taxi take Jenny away, it, was, it, was, it struck me. Um, so he, uh, at that point, though, Jenny's gone. And that's when Forrest starts running. This is the another classic scene here where he runs across country a few times in Nike shoes. Again, the emerging cultural references, I think. Um, so there are long, long acts of 2A and 2B with all these, sort of the promise of the premise of um, Forrest going through all these great experiences. Um, but the final act is really quite short. It's about, I clocked it at about 20 minutes where um, Forrest finally leaves the park bench because he can yeah. walk to where Jenny is. He learns that, wait for it. Haley Joel Osmond yeah. is the son who is young enough where he still sees live people. <laughs> he doesn't say, I see dead people. He's, he's, he can actually see Forrest. That's his son. Yeah. It's Forrest Jr. Um, and Forrest, one of the first things he says is one of the great, this is one of the great lines. He says, is he smart or is he like me? Oh. So he's worried that he's you know, passed on his condition. His bit of parenthood uh, would be uh, jeopardizing uh, this boy's happiness or success. But um, uh, it's a great line. And then he sits down watching his TV and he meets his son. And so th- then we finally see this is Jenny's journey too. She has uh, AIDS at this point. She's dying. Uh, dying is a part of life. We get all that. We um, eventually see um, Forrest, older Forrest, a Forrest Sr., um, takes his son Forrest, Forrest Jr., to the bus. And there's an early scene where Forrest has a difficulty getting on the bus. Forrest Sr. does when he was that age. But young Forrest is a little different because his father is there for him. Like his father's right behind him and helping him get on the bus. And it's a nice moment. It's a nice moment. And that's more or less where it ends. So it's, it's, it's one man's journey, but I think it's a nation's journey too. And I think that's maybe why Americans really relate to this film. But 
as a non-American, what do you think? So I, like you, had never seen this film all the way through, but I sort of felt like I had probably seen it in bits here and there and Mm -hmm. little snippets. Um, And I was surprised to sit through the film with the family uh, on a Saturday night and discover that all the things I knew about the film happened in the the first half, half or the first hour. Yeah. So certainly the first half of the movie, that's the only thing I knew. The second half of the movie, I didn't know at all. But I came away thinking, you know, basically the film, it's a, it is a version of the history of the US, mm-hmm. like from the 1950s to the 1970s. But you know what? I, and I hesitate to use this word. It's a boomer's version of that history, isn't it? Yeah. It strikes me as a, like, a, this is a conservative film. Yeah. This is a film where it's, you know, it, this film is in favour of the army and it's opposed to the counterculture. As far as, as far as this film is concerned, things like the music of the 70s, hippies, the anti-war movement, mm. the Black Panthers, yeah. all of them are worthless as far as this film is concerned. But the army, the White House, college football, yeah. uh, well-manicured lawns, these things are good. I came mm. away at the end, and in the second half of the movie, yeah. um, Forrest is wearing like, you know, this red baseball hat. And I was seriously thinking, is that what the MAGA hat is based on? Is the MAGA hat basically a reference to the Bubba Gump shrimp hat that Forrest Uh. Gump wears? Because, you know, it felt like, um, you know, a very conservative film. Yeah. I think it's it's very mainstream. This is how I would would Ah. characterize this film as mainstream commercial magical realism right okay tag, yeah, yeah. but but that for, for that for me that's the tag and the thing that's impressive about it to me is it it pulls it off i think it kind of succeeds with a, it's a, it's maybe magical realism light l-i-t-e but um you know there are these fantastic moments the running scenes or all the, the way he just accidentally gets involved with various presidents or various um iconic events speaking on the uh the the mall in the um in the uh, Vietnam War era um, protest, I guess he's actually un- un- unknowingly he's um, speaking out against the war. Um, so I think it 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 weaves all those things together believably in a way that like Bo's afraid has all these things that are unbelievable and doesn't really bother to weave them together. At least these are woven together and it's coherent. It is coherent, yeah. Um, so for me. Yeah, I think this is kind of a conservative nation to to begin with. So it does have a very, I think, a very positive nostalgia for a lot of things that aren't necessarily uh, worth nostalgia. For example, all those Nike shoes are <laughs> created in China with child labor. They don't go into that detail exactly, <laughs> do they? Um, but we do, or or the shrimping is kind of maybe the problems they're having are not based on weather or bad luck, but overfishing or something uh. like that. So, I mean, they're not, I mean, I think Americans love to not see the real. Um, so that's why this magical realism kind of works for the American audience. And I think it just works as a film and it's, it's just a... Uh, it's very accessible. I find this film super accessible, very commercial, um, but it's still kind of good. I kind of liked it. I, are you familiar with Zelig, the Woody Allen film? I am, yes. Okay. I ha- so I had seen that, and that does much the same thing that this film does, Precisely. doesn't it, by inserting yeah. Woody Allen into lots of little bits of historical footage. Yeah. So I thought of this as a, a Zelig for the common man, whereas oh. Zelig is sort of uh, hanging around with intellectuals and artists and thinkers and, unfortunately, Adolf Hitler. Um, <laughs> seems kind of appropriate now for Woody Allen, but... <laughs> cancelled, cancelled, cancelled. Um, but um, 
Forrest hangs out with Bear Bryant, a football coach at Alabama, and uh, you know the Nike people or or uh, others. I mean, he's not hanging out with intellectuals or or, or that lot. So um, I, I think of it as a zealot for the common man for that reason. The soundtrack is awesome. I mean, it's, I found myself just pumping my fists with some of those '60s tunes and '70s tunes, and I think it captures uh, that. And a lot of the that's the the undercurrent is that music, which is kind of subliminal to the film. You're hearing it, but a lot of those songs are definitely countercultural, uh, definitely revolutionary, and by no means mainstream at the time. I mean, it's popular yeah. music; it's become popular. But I think there's there's that bit of sort of revolt, which is under the surface of the the main bits of the film. Um, yeah. But I think it's yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say that the, the other film that I kind of jotted down as another t- touchstone besides Zelig is Being There, the Peter oh, yeah. Sellers film from yeah. 1980, I think. Yeah. Um, because that also has that vibe about you know someone of with uh, supposedly very low intelligence, yeah, handing out these little bon mots of of, of wisdom. Mm-hmm. That I did a bit of research on the book. There's many episodes in the book that don't feature in the film mm-hmm. so you know forrest he becomes an astronaut he gets captured by cannibals he becomes oh, really? a wrestler <laughs> he has he has an orangutan for a friend there's a whole bunch of things but one of the things that happens in the book is that he runs for the senate oh. which i think is you know it is uh, kind of that's that's the the note that being there ends on isn't yes, it i that's think right. yeah yeah um so you know it feels like it covers some of the same ground as as being there. We watched it on, on Apple TV and the little blurb that you get at the bottom of the screen when you're queuing it up ready to watch calls the film like a fable. And I think that's that's the word that I would use for it. Okay. It's a yeah. fable, isn't it? It's kind of it's it's a a metaphor. And there's you know and Forrest, you know he's a good character. But there's not a great deal I think inside him so much so that he can kind of stand for anything. Mm. So I, I came away at the end thinking, what's a, if it's a fable, what, is, what does Forrest Gump stand for? Is he, is he a stand-in for post-war America? Because you know, he, he, kind of, you know, he believes in the best, he's well-meaning, he's kind of misunderstood by others, by the international community. He's dismissed until he proves that he can beat the world at anything and everything. Mm. Um, and then I wrote down, well, maybe Forrest Gump is supposed to be Christ. He's always kind of doing the right thing. He's refusing to be corrupted by others. He sacrifices his own interests for others. Maybe, maybe that's what he's supposed to be. Is he supposed to stand in for innocence? He's, he's, you know, he's kind of simple, but he's sort of powerful and he's loving and he's unstoppable. He's, he's you know, such a kind of um, elemental character that you know, he works as the protagonist of a fable, Whereas if the film is more realistic, I think mm. you know, there would have to be more flaws to Forrest Gump, the character, before I could buy it. Yeah, I, I like your argument that it's a, like a, more of a collection of fables. That is, that's valid, which is interesting because we've just talked about Bo is Afraid being this sort of collection of stories that don't piece together, whereas this is possibly a collection of fables that, that, uh, that do piece together yeah. into one film. Um, I think more than anything else, though, I think... You early on said, "Does he is he a stand-in for post-war America?" And I think that's really what it is, right? Um, and sort of this, at least in our own eyes, true or not, an innocence of America. Um, and for me, I feel like 
and I'm going to come back to the motherness too, because the mother is the film in in both cases this week. I think um, I think it's about embracing sort of the motherness and the nurturing aspects of America ultimately, because he's growing up. There's fatherlessness, right? I mean, there's he's fatherless, yeah. Bo's fatherless. I think to America to a certain extent is fatherless. We don't really understand what those original um, founders meant starting the country, and I think a lot of us misunderstand it. I think we had wealthy landowning people put together a constitution that sort of ensures that they stay in power. So we have to, we have to overlook that, you know? Um, and we, I don't know if we willfully do it or we ignorantly do it. However it happens, um, we have this idea that we're innocent in some way. And I think this is like an, an era of, you're kind of in between the wars. I guess he's born, what, 50s? He must be born in the 1950s or something like that. Very beginning of the 50s. Yeah. I mean, he's a baby boomer. So you were talking about this being a boomer film. I would say that for him to get to Vietnam by 1970 or whatever it is, he was probably born in 52, 55, somewhere okay. there, right? So I think this is sort of a, a boomer film, post-war, post-World War II, America kind of is feeling its oats and all that, um, but really still not acknowledging. I mean, there's there's definitely some examination of race and racism and, and uh, you know, the Black Panther movement or rising in response to that. Um, there's some mention of that, but there's not a whole lot of... Um, uh, under understanding or uh, investigation of the darker side of America, I guess these are these you know great corporate enterprises like Apple and Nike uh, coming into their own. Um, uh, great football, of course, these sorts of things. Um, so it's not really touching on anything that's dark. It's a safe film, right? Um, but I think it has to do with sort of this America that doesn't really understand its origins very well, is growing, is sort of coming of age, um, but. I think his mother stands in for like what um, probably what America needs a little bit more of. So I think I think he is sort of I, don't, I wouldn't say Christ character, but he's a good guy. Forrest, he's an everyman, I think, and there are a lot of traits of his that you could follow and be a successful human being. So I think that is it. I think it's he's standing in for America, kind of an incomplete America. Starts out on weak legs or whatnot, gets strong, can actually run across the country um, five times or whatever it is, and then. Um, Procreate. Did I mention the procreation? Yes. <laughs> Without dying. Yeah. <laughs> Without dying, unlike the Northmen. <laughs> Ooh, and it features someone we're going to mention a lot from now on, Tom Hanks. Did I mention Tom Hanks is in this film? Tom Hanks is in this film. This is like Tom Hanks's first um, like serious role, I think, interestingly. I think this, oh. this is what um, really kind of pumped him up the Hollywood ranks, isn't yeah. it? I don't Before know. This, I he'd think... been like, you know, he'd been a comedian. He started out, am I right? He started out as a stand-up. Um, and then I think yeah, the first I think... place I'm, I'm aware of him was in, um, he was in Splash, wasn't he? He was in yep. Big. Yep. He was in Punchline. But I think like, he was These in... are all kind of comedy roles. And then, you know, it's kind of fairly early on. This, this predates Philadelphia, I think, Does it? doesn't it? Oh, I would have said that this is after Philadelphia. Oh, is it? Ah. But yeah, then, of course, he gets into the sort of the romantic comedies with Meg Ryan come a little bit after this, perhaps. Let's do a quick... Um, okay, we I might think we go should, to the internet. Let's be honest with our listeners. Sometimes we just go to the internet <laughs> and we type in maybe... Uh, I don't want to put in just Philadelphia because that would give me probably the city of. But Philadelphia film is 1993 which I believe comes before 1994. Ah, I eat so. my words. Yes. Oh, I eat my words. Thank then. you, Internet. Oh, my God. <laughs> internet just made me smart. What we should have done was ask ChatGPT because that probably would have lied to us and then I might have won the argument. 
my um my son had a, like a very interesting reaction to this film he's mm-hmm. obviously a far more sophisticated film critic than me we went yeah. we'd kind of walked the dog the day after uh we'd watched Forrest Gump and I asked him you know what did you think of you know what did you think of the film he's 13 and he said yeah. um he said basically it's a film about two people who have a bad start in life Mm. It's what he said. And one of them is a woman yep. and she, she goes on to have a terrible life and she gets you know, used by everyone around her. And the other one is a man and he goes on to have a great life. He can't stop winning. Ah, <laughs> and I thought, yes, you're kind of right, actually. I'm not, I, uh, I don't know whether the film gives women a raw deal or whether it more saliently observes that women are even less empowered mm-hmm. in mid 20th century America than men with disabilities. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting you yeah. mentioned about kind of you know the Black Panthers appearing. Yeah, that you know the, the, there is like this one Black Panther character who's kind of he's played as a little bit of a shouty joke, isn't he? he oh kind of, yeah, he shouts some stuff and he has like a couple of lines and that's it. We never see him again. <laughs> and like, uh, and um, I wonder whether if you are black and you are watching uh, Forrest Gump, yeah. the thing that riles you a little bit is that as we saw in the Baz Luhrmann film in Elvis, Elvis yeah. stole an awful lot from black musicians. But in according to Forrest Gump, the thing yeah. that Elvis stole from is a white kid from Alabama, and uh, yeah. know, there was no no necessary influence from, yeah. from you know from black dance uh, or black culture in, in in Elvis's kind of appropriation. It was just it was a white kid with with braces on his legs. Yeah, so uh, I can I can see there may be some people who wouldn't be super comfortable with the way that this film um, handles you know, all the controversies of of mid twentieth century America. Yeah. Well, I, as, and as I said before, I don't think it wants to. I don't think it wants to look at that dark side. But yeah, I, th- I think your son's right, though, in terms of uh, this is a film about America, and in America, the women are weaker. And certainly in the the era of this film where it's set, um, I think blacks definitely had less power. And it's uh, yeah, the, the portrayal of the Black Panthers is a little harsh, um, <laughs> for sure. It's unnuanced, I suppose. Yeah. So this is yeah, it's a very white film when you think about it. I mean, now yeah, Bubba, it, there's Bubba's family, and then he sort of plays a white savior. He comes down and sells the business or gives them uh, yeah, these huge yeah. checks and such. Um, um, there is also this question that Forrest Gump is kind of guilty of one of the same sins uh, that I think Bo is afraid of, which is that Forrest is not a tremendously active protagonist. He also largely does what he's told yeah he hasn't got a great deal of agency he has more will than than Bo in Bo is afraid but otherwise largely he just does what he's told but it just happens that he does what he's told very well mm-hmm. he's told to run and it turns out he's brilliant at running he's told to um to dismantle a, and rebuild an assault rifle and he's very good at it and does yeah. it quickly yeah um but you know this film you know in 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 the same way that um uh, you know, the film loves the army and it hates the counterculture. This film really believes that doing what you're told is good. Um, you know, and, and the person who is a bit counter countercultural and the person who goes against the norm is is Jenny, and it all ends very badly for her. So she should have just done what she was told. Mm-hmm. I, I'm probably being unnecessarily cynical. It is a sweet film. I did feel I <laughs> did feel more moved than I expected to yeah, actually, and it does yeah, pull yeah. on your heartstrings. This film, it's very effective at yeah, what yeah. it does. Yep. That's why I mean I think I'm not going to say it's a great film. It's a good film, um, and I I I like having this conversation because I think it's about America as America wants to see itself, and definitely ah. not about America as we actually are. So 
in, in that way, I don't know if that's intentional or not. I suspect not. I think you're trying to sell a film. <laughs> I think it's commercial. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. It's got happy endings to a certain extent. Um, people die at the end of the act two or something like that. You know, it, it follows a lot of the American storytelling um, uh, themes or, or, or maps, I guess, as well. So in that way, it, it's good. I think, um, God, I loved a lot of the music. The, the, the soundtrack I thought was really great, but then the, the, the score I did not like at all. It was really, and maybe that was because... There was a lot of money spent getting rights to all these great songs, but the the actual score was kind of stringy and sappy. Whereas the it is sappy. The rock it? and roll was great. Just hearing all that about rock and roll was fantastic. So, well, uh, speaking of Americans wanting to see themselves, yeah. we ought to play "Who Am I" oh, and God. see who we saw as ourselves on screen. Let's let's play "Who Am I." Oh, I like this one. This week I kind of like it. Who am I? So I I got to start out by saying that yeah, go ahead for a rare. A rare occasion. Um, this film, uh, Bo is Afraid, features a doctor or a yeah. therapist. And I uh, I do not feel like I am that guy. Nathan Lane? What are you talking about? That's exactly what I wrote down. <laughs> Jimmy is Nathan Lane. <laughs> what? No, who's, who is like the, the, the therapist that he speaks to who gives away all of his secrets to his mother and records the sessions and sends <laughs> her the tapes? I'm not that guy. I do not identify with that what guy. Who, who, who did you think you were in this in this week's two movies? In this one, um, okay, Bo is afraid. I've decided I was any one of the pointless actors doing amateur <laughs> theater in the woods with no audience whatsoever. That's who I was. The guy, the guy in the enormous ladybird costume. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Anyone, any one of those, just making theater for no reason whatsoever. That's me. <laughs> in Gump, I was probably, and I'm trying to change. Honestly, Lieutenant Dan. With his defeatist non-growth mindset, oh! But he eventually gets some new experiences and literally regains his footing, his standing. Did I give away the fact that he loses his legs? No. <laughs> oh, puns, uh, puns! I do like he, a pun. He's back up on two legs by the end of the oh. film. So I, I think that's <laughs> that's who I am. And yourself? Tell me. Well, I think I am. I'm not sure whether I'm uh, slightly sheepish or proud to say I. I Having been moved by Forrest Gump, I saw a little bit of myself in Forrest Gump. Yeah. Insofar as, you know, I really identify with um, being in a social situation and not quite understanding the thing that's going on. Yeah. <laughs> I have done that many times. I was uh, telling Rachel a while ago, I remember when I was like a, just after I'd left school and I um, went to visit some of my brother's friends in San Francisco. And as I arrived, I was walking up the streets in... Now, is it Berkeley or Berkeley? How do you pronounce that? Like Berkeley, district of California? Berkeley. Yeah, Berkeley. So, so I was in Berkeley, uh, walking, trying to find this kind of apartment where my brother's friends were living. And, and this woman, you know, who, who you know, I now, in retrospect, you know, clearly realize was um, uh, a sex worker trying to, uh, <laughs> trying to encourage me to have a good time for 60 bucks. Um, this woman stopped me on the street and she said, did I have change for a dollar? Because um, and I remember at the time absolutely taking at her face value and dishing out like and finding four quarters in my pocket and handing her oh. over and I can still picture her face as she was saying, "Geez, really?" <laughs> <laughs> it was only sometime afterwards I realised no, actually I was being propositioned there, wasn't oh. I? Oh yes. Oh right. Okay. So yes, there is a little of Forrest Gump in me. Uh, socially awkward are us. Yes. Um, I'm glad you questioned the pronunciation of Berkeley because I think it is Berkeley originally because it's named after the philosopher who, I'm trying to make a connection here. I don't know if we talked about this on pod or off pod. This is Niles Berkeley who had that hit song a few years ago? No. Niles oh. Berkeley. No. 
or Charles Barkley, the basketball player for whom oh. Charles Barkley is named, I think. No, I forget Barkley's first name, but I believe he's the one who said, he, who pondered if a tree falls in the forest. <gasps> did we not talk about that on this pod or is it? We did. I, didn't, I can't remember if we were recording when we said that or not. Maybe off mic. Yeah. I just wanted to bring that back because I think you, I think you do pronounce his name. If, if people make an intelligent philosophical reference on a podcast, but they weren't recording, did it happen at all? <laughs> as long as you mentioned Tom Hanks's name, it happened. <laughs> we are hoping that the algorithm will pick up that we've mentioned Tom Hanks two hundred times in this podcast <laughs> and somehow get us into the feed of all those Tom Hanks fans out of there. Okay, we should let's do our let's do our synthesis. We'll 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 see if we can bring these two films mm. together. I think we've already done half the work, but let's see yeah, if we yeah. can. See if we can uh, dot the I's and cross the T's. Just clean up. Just clean up at this point. So, you, um, you kind of pointed out like this is this is these are two films about single men and their mothers. Yeah, aren't they? Yeah, you know, with, but yeah. Like, the big difference is that Forrest you know, is supported by his mother. Yeah. You know, in any way she can, and whereas Bo is, you know, manipulated and, and thwarted by his. But I think for this reason, I think these two films are they're like two sides of one coin. I think they go together very well. Yeah, well, I think, um, yeah, they're protagonists who grew up without their fathers, right? Their origin yeah. stories involve an absence of one of the originators in the sense that uh, the fathers aren't in the yeah. picture. And for Bo, yeah. we don't even know if he survived um, <clears throat> um, consummation or um, impregnation or whatever you want to call it. Uh, with Forrest, what do we know about the father? I think he he disappeared. What, what he did, disappears. What did... He definitely doesn't turn into a giant penis monster in the attic. We know no. that much. No. So their origins are somehow in doubt or... <laughs> I don't, does that make them lesser characters somehow? I'm not really sure. It's like there's a deficit to both of them, right? Yeah. For, yeah. for, for Bo, it's kind of this, this mental illness or these mental troubles. For Forrest, he can't walk for some reason uh, until he's told to run, as you mentioned earlier. So there's, uh, there's this automatic pull to the mother in both cases. So I think that's a very important theme. And I, I don't know. Do you think um, uh, Bo is afraid in any way picks up on Forrest Gump? Is there some, he's trying to remake Forrest Gump or something like that? I don't know. Well, but. I, I think, I, I mean, clearly Ari Aster will have seen Forrest Gump because yeah. who hasn't? I think both these films, they're kind of retellings of the Odyssey, aren't they? Mm. Ooh, they both yeah. feature kind of lone men. They're traveling great distances and encountering great challenges mm-hmm. you know, in the hope of returning home yeah. to, to a significant woman in their lives, aren't they? I mean, the, the Odyssey is such an eternal story. I realise that people yeah. will you know, slightly tell us off for saying that we are very Western-centric in sure. citing our... Our influences, but yeah, the Odyssey it, it can it's reused and retold again and again sure. and again. I think I think these are both films that owe their basic structure to the Odyssey. And well, there's one interesting thing in the sense that um, there's no way Bo is reproducing after his one sexual encounter, whereas Forrest <laughs> does. You know, and uh, the, the, some uh, some would say that the Odyssey is sort of like a salmon story as well, where you're you're running up river to to reproduce and then you die. Oh God, that's ah. terrible. So that's in some ways that's more Bo's story. What is the one? Cold Mountain? Was that a few? It was a decade ago, maybe twenty years ago. Sort of very similar story where the Jude Law character is just on this crazy trip coming home from the Civil War, ends up hooking back up with um Is it Nicole Kidman? In Nicole film? Kidman, thank you, or her character, of course. Um and yeah, he too um is able to reproduce at the very end. So there is this this life and progeneration sort of 
theme to some of those Odyssey stories. I don't know that the original Odyssey has that because he, Odysseus comes back quite an old man and what his dog recognizes him. I don't know if his wife does, but... Um, I think his, his wife is surrounded by suitors, isn't she? I think his wife yeah. is, you know, has clearly still got it sure. um, in the Odyssey. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I'm guessing. Um, Coming home to mother. Yeah, it's not out of, it's not out of the question. That, yeah. Uh, the, other, the other kind of thing that compares, I know, so we talked about kind of Forrest Gump as, you know, as a kind of political film, or at least you know, it, it can have a political interpretation. Mm. There's not a lot of political sensibility to Bo is Afraid, I think. So I, I'm, I'm kind of asking myself, does it say something about, you know, racism? No. Does it say something about feminism? Kind of not really. It's about mm-hmm. Freud. Does it, does it say something about socialism? No. But I, th- I think Bo is Afraid does try to say something about the disintegration of society, maybe. Yeah. Large, it's kind of Bo is Afraid is a film about the self, I think, while Forrest Gump is a film about an entire nation. Precisely. Yeah. You know, Bo is a... It's, and, 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 you know, I, and I suppose today we live in the age of the self. I mean, things are... It's not very long ago, but things are surprisingly different today to how they were in 1994, nearly 30 years. Yeah. Um, I don't know whether films feel they have as much responsibility to examine society as, as they once did. Bo, is, it's a very kind of internal film. It looks, it looks in the mirror and not out of the window, doesn't it? Yeah, I think... For, Forrest Gump looks... Oh, go ahead, I'm sorry. It, it, maybe it looks out of the window. Maybe it kind of looks at the TV. Forrest Gump looks at the newspapers. Yeah. Whereas kind of Bo is afraid, you know, look, looks in like the, 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 the camera on your smartphone, which is pointing at you and made for the selfie. Yeah. That's where that film is looking. I think um, the far more personal story is Bo is afraid. And I think that's a mistake. I think when it does look at America, it's pretty cool. It's a pretty good film. Uh, Those opening scenes in the city are pretty good. I think uh, some, some takes on suburbia are kind of interesting. Um, but it, it ends up being too much about Bo and his psyche, which is odd to say about a film. But you said he was a very inactive protagonist and um, it, it, it's not a strong enough character to be a great psychological story. I don't think it's just sort yeah. of a battered man. Whereas I think Forrest Gump is far more about America. It's, you know, he's a pretty easy character to relate to and to sympathize with. And we like him. So we follow his story. But it's so much about the United States as well and and his trying to sort of just keep in touch with Jenny and bring her into his life. Um, so I think I think it's Bo is more personal and I think that's a mistake somehow. I mean it could have been a great film as a personal film, but and I think its best moments are kind of when it is about America because it's a much more honest America probably, you know, the all ah. the medi- the medication stuff, the homelessness, the the violence, the knifings, the the random murders and all that. I mean, that's America. And I like that fact. I wish it were more like that. Honestly, I wish it were a darker film. And, and Forrest never tries to be dark. It never really looks at the underbelly of America. Um, but it's just a more accessible film as a result. And America becomes sort of a big, uh, the big character, I think. They, they really are two sides of the same coin, aren't yeah, they? they? Absolutely. Really yeah. You can't see both sides at once. Yeah. Mm, good, good pairing. Good not pairing. A, I think they belong pairing. together. Absolutely. I think between the two of them, you get a fuller picture. Okay. Yeah. What two films belong together on our next pod where we talk about <gasps> Tom Hanks and two other films? Funny you should mention no Tom Hanks movies next time. <laughs> Tom so, Hanks doesn't need to be in it. He just needs to be mentioned on the podcast. <laughs> song speak, song speak. Yes, we just need to crowbar his name in randomly. So uh, next time around, we are going to watch uh, Are You There, God? It's me, Tom Hanks. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> and uh, we'll see whether we can somehow squidge Tom Hanks into the discussion somehow. But before we talk about that, we, we, we need to talk about what's also been playing at this oh, theatre. Oh, that's right. I missed a step there. I don't think I saw anything in the theatre. You didn't see anything this week? I saw films. I did not step into a movie theater. Oh. And I kind of got into... It's also playing on this streaming service, it should be okay. called. Okay. Yeah, perfectly. Well, I'm glad it's on a streaming service because, as I said before, I don't know that I can sit down and watch this film in one sitting. Right. It's the uh, the Alejandro Iñárritu film. It's Bardo and something about a handful of truths. Um, have you heard about it? It's on. I have the, not. Went right to Netflix. I don't think it had a theatrical release. Maybe it did. Um, so it's sort of. Uh, I know at some point we're going to watch Fellini. We have to. Um, right. It feels like a Fellini. It feels like his eight and a half. Um, I'm not going to recommend okay. it to anyone yet, in part because I haven't really been through much of it. But um, it has a lot of the. Um, a lot of the excesses of Bo is afraid so far, and not a really strong story. And. I'm not enjoying it, but I probably will watch it. Um, I've seen most of his films. Um, but I was really into I watched actually a documentary on our Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, which means nothing oh. to the UK audience, I don't think. But Well, um, not a great deal, but I have read a little bit about yeah. him in the news. Not much of it very good. So he yeah, it's an interest it's just a public television, sort of sort of like the the BBC um, producing a documentary on Clarence Thomas and his wife Ginny Thomas, who are two characters who really have a sort of an, a heavy hand in American politics when they really shouldn't have them. Um, but it, it, they, my brother turned me onto this because Ginny Thomas went through this um, it's a human potential program called Life Spring. I don't know if you had these programs in the UK. You guys are too smart for this, where um, people get together and they celebrate the power of themselves. There are things called Est and Landmark, Life Spring. Um, right, celebrating the power of yourself. That's not something that ever happened in the United Kingdom. I don't Kingdom. think so, no. no so no. These, like, they're kind of like these self-help group things that happen in hotels. And uh, I went to one of these things, a graduation for Life Spring once, and um, it, it really feels culty and actually i just listened to a podcast called good cult which has <laughs> right. too many advertisements and not enough of them are spoof advertisements you know what's great about two real cinema club you hear advertisements here that you will not hear anywhere else <laughs> funny uh, that yeah this guy has some advertisements too many advertisements and it really interrupts the story but i've been listening to this podcast on LifeSpring because decades ago i started a musical theater production i was writing a show Based, oh. based on Life Spring. Awesome. Oh, hey. And then I just jotted down some titles for some of the songs that I'm going to write. And I got all excited about writing this again. So the, the Clarence Thomas and Ginny Thomas thing turned me back onto an old musical project that I've always wanted to uh, complete. So I've been listening to podcasts and watching that Bardo film and thinking about Life Spring. Uh, that, that, that's a musical I want to see. You've got to finish that. I've got yeah. the, the, this week. You know, I always bring the lowbrow uh, to this podcast. <laughs> I, bring, so, I brought no brow just now. <laughs> uh, uh, last weekend, we all sat down as a family and we watched Time Trap, a, a super low budget 2017 film, which I have now watched twice. Wow. I, as you know, I have a real weakness for kind of cheap, cheesy science fiction films because occasionally I manage to, to foist them on you for the pod. Yeah, yeah. This is a, a low budget uh <laughs> very cheesy time travel movie uh so made uh, kind of like six years ago okay um 
And there's there are two things about it which I really love. Um, so I just watched it on my own a year or so ago and then persuaded the family, oh, we should watch this, come and watch this together. One of the, one of the two things I love about it is that it is 90 minutes long wow, and not yeah. a moment longer. It's exactly the right length <laughs> for a feature good. film. It clips along um, and uh, you know, does not waste its time, gets through plenty of story nice and quickly, You know, keeps things moving. Um, and the other thing I really enjoy about it is that Oh, I love a time travel film. I'm such a sucker for a time travel film. We'll yeah. always try and watch one, whether it's good or bad. Yeah. It's you know, one of my absolute favourite things. And in this film, um, it's about a cave in some remote part of the US. And once you go in the cave, you know, time speeds up massively. Oh. Um, so you can see the sun flashing past through the outside, the, the opening of the cave as uh, days and then years go speeding by while you are trapped in the cave trying to get out. Yeah. And they do squeeze the absolute maximum they can out of this story idea. Right. It is full of ideas. Mm. Some of them great ideas, some of them crazy, ridiculous ideas, but it absolutely yeah. squeezes the maximum out of it. Great fun. Oh, good. Um, cheesy, low budget, good fun. Great. Uh, any actors that I should recognize or? No, not no. one. Okay. <laughs> okay. Good. Good. Um, yes, it is so low budget. <laughs> I think my daughter did recognize one of the one of the principals in it, who I think has then been in a mermaid television series, something oh. like that. Okay. Um, no, it's written and directed by Mark Dennis and Ben Foster. I'm not aware of anything else that they have done. Okay. Um, it's, it's a little kind of not sure we've got a theatrical release. It's on Netflix uh, in the UK, at least. But yeah. Low budget, good fun little movie. And they just go into it. They just go into a cave. Is that correct? That's it, exactly. That's such a. It's like it's five no name actors in a cave. It's like you know, how how cheap can this can this but be? It's such it, a, it's, well, it's cheap. I gotta say that I the one time lightly time travel script that I've written also happens more or less in a cave or a bunker, and it just seems like a different world. It's enough. You don't need a whole lot of mumbo jumbo to to create the tri- time travel. You just got this one place where something weird happens. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. That's not so bad. That sounds good, Jimmy. That's not low. No, it it it's good fun, but yeah, but, but yeah, temper your expectations. <laughs> right. Uh, so, uh, Tom Hanks, it's been a great pleasure doing this, doing this Tom Hanks podcast, Tom Hanks. Um, <laughs> Uh, join us next week when we're going to be talking about something uh, a little bit more serious. We'll talk about Adele Hanel next week at the Popcorn Counter. But yeah. uh, for tonight, yeah. uh, we will return in two weeks with "Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret." Um, until then, I hope I hope I hope the world outside your window is more like Forrest Gump and less like Bones yeah. Afraid. Yeah, that's definitely a, a well wish for everyone out there. <laughs> Thank you for joining. See you next time. Thank you, everyone. Bye, Tom. Bye.